part of um, what is at the heart of our life together as a parish, especially with um, the way that we are, are stewards of that hour, maybe hour and a half that, that families give us each week, um, or really, let me, let's be honest, about 20 weeks out of the average year, um, is, is, is the, the secret in our sauce is Storymakers NYC. Storymakers uh, is, is uh, the, the beautiful gift of Melina Smith to the body of Christ and, and her team. And I just want to welcome you here, Melina. Uh, thank you for coming to All Saints. Uh, just to briefly talk about uh, Storymakers and to introduce Jane. Come on up. Hey, friends. I am the founder of Storymakers, but I am the bestie of Jane Grizzle, and that's why I came. I'm so excited for you guys to hear her next. It's going to be fantastic. Um, thank you, Paul and Mary, for sharing your words. Uh, we got to uh, hear that message, I don't even know now, it's a long time ago, 20 years ago. And so that instilled in us, Jake and I, and our ministries, the urgency of this message. And so that's why we do what we do with Storymakers, because we know that those little sinners need to know Jesus. <laughs> and they need a, that redemptive narrative. They need to know that David was not so good. And they aren't either, but there's someone who is better and for them. So that's just a side note about Storymakers. But I'm here really for Jane. She is uh, a great friend. I met her 17 years ago in New York City. We got to know the gospel and try it out together in those early years when we were in our 20s. Um, and now Jane is studying her D-Min, and she is uh, studying about sacred writing. She's fantastic. I'm sure you have read her on the blog. If you haven't, definitely get to do that. Um, she is the mother of three, Forrest, Annie and Margot, I get to be the blessed godmother of Margot, the troublemaker. Um, super fun. She's the best. Jane has lived in Geneva, in Houston, Texas, and now she is based in Charlottesville, and she is on the vestry of Christ Church. They are super blessed. Yeah. <laughs> People are really excited about that, too. Fun facts. Um, well, Jane is going to come up and share a something super special with all of us. We're super excited to hear her wisdom, um, hear about how God has moved in her life and the Holy Spirit has changed um, her life and how she sees the world. And she's going to impart that uh, wisdom to all of us. So without further ado, let's welcome Jane. She's fantastic. Do check out Storymakers. Um, it is important. Um, so I don't have any Gulag slides. Um, I'm not good at PowerPoint, but I do have psoriasis, so I'm very excited <laughs> to share with you today. I don't take that drug, but I might look into it. So thank you, Harrison, wherever you are. That's a good tip for me. Um, so I was going to talk about something else that's like much easier to talk about, and I had this issue and thought I should talk about bodies, but I really want to preface my time up here with an acknowledgement that sometimes talking about bodies is really uncomfortable. And I don't mean this in like a seventh grade health class kind of way. We're not going to talk about hormones or like your changing body, but um, I think it's important to recognize that each of us in this room has a different relationship with your body. Um, and for many of us, 
myself included, it's a source of shame or frustration. Some of us are disconnected from our bodies. It's a source of pain. My friend Morgan is a counselor, and she said that without fail, if her clients talk about their bodies, they will cry every time. It's a place of great vulnerability because our bodies are finite. And I think sometimes we shy away from talking about our bodies because of that. But as a Christian, I think the gospel, this good news of this one-way love to us, has something to say about all of our lives, especially our life in our body. And I want you to know that I'm speaking as much to myself today as I'm speaking to you. We all have a lot of feelings and thoughts and experiences, this is sounding like story makers, in our bodies um, and about our bodies. My fervent hope today is that you feel, uh, leave feeling of comfort and not condemnation. I am the oldest sister to three brothers, so I do sometimes come across as a little bossy. So if you feel that, just know that it's like from my, it's, it's in my nature. Um, my brothers can tell you that's been there since birth. Um, so one of the primary paradigms we have for our bodies is the idea of I have a body. And since I'm studying writing and language, we like to look at every single word in a sentence. And the word have is an interesting word to use with regard to our bodies. Um, have is a relationship word, it's not an action word. It tells us about our relationship to our body and it's a possessive word. So we believe that we have a body, that we are the owners and possessors of our body. And we believe often that we are somehow above the body, that we should control it and manage it. And that our body is somehow separate and lower than our mind, which we esteem. This is what the Gnostics and Plato believed. I'm not gonna go into that because I'm not that smart. But the spirit and mind, um, we have this idea that our body is in, in service to our spirit and our mind. So before I, you all are like, where's that funny guy? This is super boring. <laughs> I wanted to talk about the language and metaphors we use for our bodies. Judging by my local Barnes & Noble, which I feel like the health and wellness and personal improvement section, it's all one now, um, has grown substantially. It's a small Barnes & Noble, but that is a, a hefty section. Um, our language has turned technological. In the early 2000s, our language was all about revolution, which I think is really interesting from a historical perspective. We were like on the low carb revolution. Now it's almost all technological. We hack our nutrition, which I think is more of a men thing than a women thing, but we follow programs, we unplug when we feel stressed, we optimize our cardio workouts, we rewire our appetites and cravings, we recharge our souls. And we talk about our biology as though it's a machine that we run. And we put certain things in like good sleep or exercise or certain foods or behaviors. And we expect certain outputs like lower weight or increased energy or higher productivity. And that might work for a while. And if it does work, we love to recommend it to other people because we assume it will work for everyone else too. At least that's what my Instagram says. Um, and it all works until it doesn't. It might work until you can't exercise due to an injury or illness. It might work until you turn 40 and suddenly calories in and calories out is not quite adding up. It might work until you discover your genetic material carries a signal for your joints to ache or your eyes to fail or for you to get plaque psoriasis. Bodily limitations are difficult for all of us to accept and live with. We all have them. My eight-year-old daughter came home last month to tell me that in school she had learned that a human can go three days without water and a month without food or something like that. Apparently this is important for third graders to know. Um, we all have to sleep, we all have to eat, and I know people in my own family who are really frustrated that they only have 24 hours in a day. But those are just the basics of limitations. 
Illness and injury require us to slow down and to take a different path and to rest. And in some ways, these limitations are a spotlight on our priorities and what we see when we are forced to slow down and look at our lives might not be pretty. When everything's going right, we don't notice these longings in the same way we do when we're forced to slow down or stop altogether. Limits are another word for interruptions and dead ends. And when I think about times in my life when I've hit one of these dead ends, I dislike them for one of three reasons. They're humbling, they're isolating, and they're disorienting. First, I am often humbled and sometimes very humiliated by my limitations. To address the elephant in the room, if you've met me more, you know, more than three feet away, you've noticed that I've had a white mouth guard in my mouth. It's super cool, and it looks like I have like a giant wad of gum on either side. Um, it's visible in pictures. It's really great. Even my daughters are like, can you just smile with your mouth closed? <laughs> um, so I was so worried about what I was going to wear to this conference, and I was like, never mind. I have to wear a giant mouth guard. It doesn't even matter. But um, I'm on a soft food diet. Happy to talk to you about that. It's very exciting. But it's this tiny, basically what happened is, over time, I clenched my jaw a lot, and the disc slipped out of my jaw. And so it dislocated, and it caused a cascade of physical problems, chief among them, a jaw that did not open very much. For a long time, I was on a flat food diet, like a lot of quesadillas. But we've graduated to soft food, so that's exciting. Um, but it also meant that all the muscles on this side of my head like ratcheted down to protect that joint. So I've been in a lot of pain. And so if you see me doing this, it's not you. It's my jaw. It's a small injury. It's actually like really, really small, but a really good illustration. I found myself totally distracted by the pain, discouraged by the lack of mobility and grumpy because I could not eat what I wanted to, which is a burger. And I'm really excited to eat that at some point. I hated having to ask people to make sure they had soft food on the menu when they invited me over for dinner. I missed deadlines and I was grumpy with my kids. I expected much more of myself, but was brought low by this tiny disc in my jaw. All of my aspirations of being an engaged mom, a prolific writer, an efficient homemaker were completely undone by this tiny disc and the pain. Accepting our limitations requires a level of humility that not many of us have. Bear with me, I'm going to talk sports. I read a great article about the World Cup last month. It was comparing Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi, two of the greatest players of our time. If you are not into soccer, you can ignore this metaphor. I want you to know that I have no dog in this fight. I'm actually a huge Mbappe fan, so neither of these are the greatest player of our time. But I can be an unbiased observer in this competition. Ronaldo, playing for Portugal, who we all love to hate because he is so beautiful, um, wanted to play like he did when he first burst onto the world football stage when he was in his early 20s. He could not accept that his body is old. He's 39, so it's all relative. But he could not adapt to his aging body, and actually they lost because of his unwillingness to accept this. Messi, on the other hand, played differently as an older player. Again, he's like 35, so older is very relative. But he could accept that he's slower and not as energetic as he used to be, and his whole style of play changed, and he played better and ultimately won the World Cup for Argentina, which was really exciting. This is not to say that if we accept the aging process, we will win a World Cup, but fighting against humility is a surefire way to hurt yourself. And when we're sick or hurt, our normal routine is interrupted. We have to lie down and rest. We might have to change our exercise routines. And they're not just inconvenient for us. When my husband's back seizes up when we are running to catch a flight in the Fort Lauderdale airport, as a hypothetical example, I end up with all the luggage and the children. 
And when we were driving to Sophia Smith's quinceanera, I had gotten my flu shot and was having side effects and couldn't drive. So my husband had to drive the whole way to New York. We all are limited by our own and other limitations. As Will Ryan wrote in a brilliant essay for Mockingbird last week, it's kind of a long quote, so stick with me. For as much as I talk about God's grace being a gift or that we are saved not by our actions or works, but by Jesus's work on the cross, or that faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit, the rubber met the road when I couldn't do anything. Our value isn't found in what we've done or accomplished, but in what God has done for us. Sounds really nice until you can no longer do a single thing but watch third-tier college football bowl games, or in my case, British murder mysteries, and wallow. Will continues, as much as I've professed to be a theologian of the cross, all I need is a little bit of failure, of plans going awry, of personal uselessness to expose the fact that I'm still a, theolog a theologian of glory. I still want to contribute at least a little something. I still think I have to take care of others, including myself, and I don't want to let go of the image of myself as in charge, in control, or in power. Part of this is because we still believe that we are what we do and what we produce, and limitations destroy that. Even though I want to believe that I'm loved regardless of my productivity, that theology of glory that Will writes about is always just under the surface. And nothing brings my self-glorification to a standstill quite like pain. So second, bodily limitations are also, also feel isolating. Um, we are wired for relationship and illness and injury do make that more difficult, especially if you feel you are the only one struggling with limitations. When I was 19, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, which is a chronic mental illness that causes me to obsess and ruminate on intrusive thoughts, namely harming others or being evil. A lot of Sunday school background there. Um, and then also performing compulsions, which also very Sunday school of me, were mostly special prayers and mantras and confessions to help manage the obsessive thoughts. Like many other sufferers of chronic illness, I struggled deeply with depression at the lack of a resolution or quick fix. While all my friends were off at parties and pulling all-nighters to get the best grades, I diligently put in the hours with counselors and therapies. I tried to avoid situations that might trigger a panic attack, like not getting enough sleep or taking on too many deadlines. I manage it now, but I still have obsessions and compulsions to this day. And when you're 19 or 39, you really wanna find your people and you wanna be loved and included. And for me, because my illness is not visible, people do not understand it. And it's hard to explain what life with a brain disorder is like, though I try. Um, in her book, The Invisible Kingdom, I highly recommend it for anyone who knows or someone with a or loves someone with a chronic illness. Megan O'Rourke writes about her struggle with an autoimmune disease. She says, American culture and American medicine within it largely strives to downplay the fact that we still know so little about illness. In the place of uncertainty, Americans have catchphrases. Just do it. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, which is a killer Kelly Clarkson song. But the Shadowland I lived in, forced against my will, was an uncomfortable and unsatisfying place, especially since I lived in a culture that promotes the importance of triumph over adversity, a culture that insists on recovery. Having a chronic illness, whether mental or physical, means you don't fit in the box of sick or recovered. There isn't a comforting narrative with a clean resolution. We, people with chronic illnesses, occupy some sort of in-between land of management and not a cure, and it's really lonely. This last one is a bit of a long and winding path, but I think we can all agree that an illness and injury and limitations disorient us, especially because they highlight our lack of control and we are oriented to try to control things. 
I'll be the first to admit that if I was in charge, I would never have been sick or have a disorder or anything that can hinder me. So much of our lives are built around the assumption of health and wellness, which brings me back to this metaphor of body as machine. Look, I believe in the machine model. I really want it to work. If I put in discipline and good foods and healthy exercise, I should maintain my health. But when the metaphor fails, and when I realize I'm not in total control of my body's health and ease, when dis-ease arrives, I have no one to blame but myself. And therefore, in addition to pain and discomfort that we feel, we also feel shame when we cannot make ourselves better. If only we try a little harder, or cut out a certain food group, or start a new exercise regimen, or hack our biology, whatever that means, um, then maybe these physical limitations can be conquered. This is another way that we try to control in our attitudes and reactions. We try to find a purpose in our pain, a silver lining to our suffering. We tell ourselves stories about how or why people get sick. It's a way to assert our agency in all of this suffering. Dr. Kate Bowler, um, there's some Duke Divinity people here, so you may know her, um, associate professor of the history of Christian theology at Duke, was diagnosed with stage four cancer at age 34. In her book, which I highly recommend also, she writes about control like this. Control is a drug and we are all hooked. Whether or not we believe the prosperity gospel assurance that we can master our future with our words and attitudes, I can barely admit to myself that I have no choice but surrender, and neither can those around me. She goes on to describe her friends who sang kale and quinoa recipes, and then says, buried in all of their concern is an unspoken question. Do I have any control? I experienced this desire to control the narrative when I was first diagnosed with depression and OCD. The first question I was asked when I told someone about my panic attacks and despair was, do you have any unconfessed sin in your life? People wrote me notes reminding me that the joy of the Lord was my strength. And if I just read my Bible more or stopped listening to that pagan music, which was like, I don't know, the Backstreet Boys or something. <laughs> I wasn't like into hardcore anything. Um, or reading non-edifying books. That's probably more of what I was into. Uh, my spirits would be lifted. 20 years ago, psychiatric illnesses and disorders were not common, especially with children, and they were not talked about. So it makes sense that people wanted to look for something or someone to blame. And Christians are no different. We just have a lot more slogans. So, so what does the gospel say about bodily limitations? I asked Mel, I was like, there's a lot of Bible in this. Is that okay? So hopefully you guys are cool with that. Um, how does Jesus feel about our broken or damaged bodies? I actually didn't realize how many people Jesus healed until I really started looking at his healings. And don't worry, I'm not talking about them in sort of prosperity gospel, like how Jesus can heal you. But I do want to look at how he interacts with people's bodies. There are a few things that stand out. First, Jesus knows a thing or two about humility, just like we do in our humbling limitations. We just celebrated Advent and Christmas and the incarnation of Christ. And as Auden writes in my favorite Advent poem, how could the eternal do a temporal act, the infinite become a finite fact? How can Jesus, who knew no limits, become man, a limited and finite creature? We worship a God who made his entire rescue plan for all of humanity dependent on having a human body. And Jesus did not just come, and Jesus did not just come to earth as a human, but as the most limited human of all, a newborn baby. 
You all think Dave is like really, really smart and clever with his words, but if you live in Charlottesville, you get to hear his children's sermons, which are really entertaining and good. They're very good. My kids always love them. But right before Christmas, Dave was talking to the kids about how Jesus came as a human and not just a human, the most limited human, a baby. They can't do anything. And he asked the kids how they felt about being a baby. And this one kid just looked at Dave and said, mixed bag. And that was his... (laughs) What Dave doesn't know is that for 10 minutes in Children's Chapel, I was then mansplained about what mixed bag means. It means you have a lot of different emotions at the same time. Um, But Dave was right. None of us would choose to be a baby again. I mean, my daughter was like, I would like to be carried, but everything else sounds horrible. Jesus became man not by thinking like a human or having the reason of a human or a mind of a person. He becomes a man by inhabiting a body. There's something key to our humanity that is wrapped up in our physical bodies. And I think a lot of that is shown in limitation. We know that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus needed sleep. He felt pain. He bled. He also only had 24 hours in a day. My limitations remind me of the incredible sacrifice he made, leaving his limitless seat at the right hand of God to come to earth to know what it means like to be human. And that means we can bring all of our humanity and humiliation to him. Sometimes I think God doesn't have time or energy for human things like my brain disorder or my pain or my disappointment in my jaw. Nothing could be further from the truth. His incarnation allows him the utmost empathy for all of our limitations. What we ultimately want when we are hurting is for someone to be with us and validate our pain. In her book, Megan O'Rourke quotes a 1989 op-ed by the then mayor of Princeton who had been diagnosed with cancer, who said, if I die, I don't wanna feel like a failure. It's scary. I want the dignity of that reality. We want someone to empathize. Because of Jesus' incarnation and crucifixion, we know we have been given that dignity. And he can have this empathy, and he can embrace us in all of our shame and sadness, all of our failure to control, and our mistaken ideas of importance in the death of his body on a cross. The central component of our service each Sunday, at least at my church at home, is a body broken for you. We celebrate a body that has reached its ultimate limit and died. Every Sunday, my priest snaps the wafer in half, an audible and visible reminder that our salvation is only through Jesus' bodily death. And while we think we can improve our bodies and manage our bodies, the stories of Jesus' healings in the Bible show us something different. Jesus pretty much only heals people who bring absolutely nothing to the table. He heals not the most famous or powerful. He heals lepers, outcasts, those who are considered unclean, the blind, the lame, servants, children, paralytics, those who cannot offer payment or anything in return. Our desire for influence and power, which is ultimately a desire to achieve and accomplish, is not required for a relationship with God. In many ways, our desire to do it ourselves and to fight through the pain to fix ourselves so we can get back to work does us a disservice. In his book, Being Human, I'll give you all my reading list. It's a really great list. I keep recommending books. Rowan Williams writes that if we believe we are in charge of ourselves and our bodies, we drift towards a steady expectation that the best relationship we can be in to the world is control. The best place to be is a place where you can never be surprised. We want to control what's strange, and we want to control what doesn't fall under our immediate power. We're uneasy with limits that we can't get beyond because limits of whatever kind remind us that there are some things that are just going to be strange and difficult wherever we are and however hard we work at them. But then he goes on to explain that acknowledging our limits exposes something incredibly true about us. We are people who depend not on what is ours, what is not us, or our will, our hope, or our achievements. 
Christians are adopted into a dependent relationship to that which Jesus calls Abba, Father. So Melina's goddaughter, my daughter Margot, um, is a firecracker. And for about a, probably two months last spring, she told me the same thing every night before she fell asleep. And she has these real squishy cheeks and these like big Disney princess eyes. And she would look at me and say, Mom, I hate being the littlest. And then she would roll over and go to sleep every night without fail. She is a one-woman force of nature. She will run the world if we can get her to age 18. Thank you, Mary, for those tips. We're going to really try to get her there. Um, she is the third. She is the baby. She does not like that, so please don't call her that. But she hates being dependent on people. When Margot asks me for help, it is the greatest thing in the world because it takes so much for her to get there. Ultimately, though, we are all like Margot. We hate it, but we're totally dependent on the cross. And I think physical limitations are part of that reality. Second, Jesus cares about our loneliness and invites us into the community of his body. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In our prayer book, we pray, you, we thank God for graciously accepting us as living members of the body of his son, Jesus Christ. We also see this welcome in Jesus' healing of the hemorrhaging woman found in Mark chapter 5, verses 25 through 34. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. For 12 years, this woman had been considered unclean. She's poor and destitute because of her desperate search for a cure. She would have been isolated and pretty alone, kept from a full participation in her community. This may seem ancient and old-fashioned to you. We don't keep women home for the duration of their periods or because of bleeding now. We don't have the same laws. But if we replace Levitical law with the new law of health, wellness, thinness, and beauty, we have plenty of exclusionary practices. Think about how we treat people in larger bodies or people with physical disabilities, people who have different bodies than all of us. There's a beautiful new documentary out right now called I Didn't See You There made by Reed Davenport, and it's shot entirely from his point of view from his motorized wheelchair. Davenport has cerebral palsy, and one of the more poignant comments in the documentary is that Davenport feels looked at but not seen. But here we see that Jesus does not ignore the woman or her touch. He turns to the crowd and he sees her, even though he's busy and on his way to heal a dead person. He looks at her and calls her daughter. Jesus heals not only her physical limitation, but her shame. He restores her dignity and her place in the community. And I just wonder, where do we feel shame and unacceptable because of our bodies? What places are we kept out of, either by ourselves or others, because of our limitations? Another way I've found this desire for community met is through what my friend Andy Gullihorn describes as the club that no one wants to be in because tears are the price you have to pay. 
The more comfortable I grow telling people about the pain and suffering of my OCD or even my silly jaw dislocation, the less I try to hide my panic attacks or depression or despair, the more I hear whispers of me too. As Dave writes in his book, Low Anthropology, everyone should pick up a copy, we are more connected in our shared limitations than in any of our victories. We find deep friendships among those who can understand our suffering. It's no one's top choice for how to find a community or like find your people, but everyone will be part of some sort of suffering someday. I would not go so far as to say I'm glad I have OCD, but my disorder for all of its pain and embarrassing aspects is an entry point for participating in the suffering of the world. And lastly, how does the gospel console us in our lack of control? First, we don't have to make our stories make sense or find the silver lining or neaten them up with a good lesson we've learned. In John 9, when the disciples asked who sinned that this man was born blind, Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God is the one who works all things together. It's all his story, and we can surrender control of the narrative to the author of life. I hesitate to say this last part because sometimes it's used by Christians to dismiss pain and suffering, um, but I'm going to say it because I think it's really important. I want to point out one more time Jesus deals with a body, specifically a very dead body. In John 12, we read that his friend Lazarus has died, and after three days, Jesus arrives at his tomb and asks them to roll away the stone. And I love Martha, who here is most concerned about the smell. Um, I also am very sensitive to smell, so I feel that very deeply. But starting in verse 43, it says, When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, Unbind him and let him go. Lazarus is raised from the dead, but is still wrapped in his death cloths. He's still limited in his humanity. Now, if we look at the resurrection of Christ in John 20, stooping down to look in, John saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. We are like Lazarus, who Jesus resurrected and called forth from the tomb, but who was still wrapped in his burial clothes. We are still limited in our physical being, and we are still finite. But we celebrate that one man has overcome those limitations, folded up those burial clothes, and walked out of the grave. We are still wrapped up, but the day will come when we will be unwrapped and let loose. We know our limits are themselves limited. In Romans 6, Paul writes, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. As we say each Sunday, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come, a world where we will be free from sin and death, where there will be no more pain or sadness or jaw dislocations, no more tears and no more suffering. One last thought to leave you with, it's a little bit like meta-literary nerd, but in Frederick Buechner's last book, he wrote about the novelist Graham Greene, who wrote The Power and the Glory and the End of the Affair, and he said that all of his books had a subterranean presence of grace. Buechner then drew a connection to his own work, and he said, in the telling of my variation of the human story, I discovered cracks in the ground of my life through which I was able to glimpse the subterranean, life-giving grace of God.
We do not look at the ground when we're winning or when we are striving or when we are climbing or when we are crushing it. We look at the ground when the Charlie Brown music plays, when we've messed up or have been disappointed or are just sad or limited. But if we don't look down, I think we miss the cracks in the ground of our life and we miss these glimpses of the subterranean life-giving grace of God. Perhaps my limitations and your limitations are those cracks where we witness the underground mercy of God. Thank you.